As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show presented by Sling. Very special edition today. It's the book club edition. We are talking to an author, a genuine author, John Talty from AL.com, guy I've been reading and have known for a long time. He has a new book out, and it is called The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban, How Alabama's Coach Became the Greatest Ever. And John, there, you know, there aren't a lot of like books about a single coach that I would dedicate an entire episode to, but a book about Nick Saban... And how he became this. And I think you do a really good job of taking us through the evolution of how he went from the head coach at Toledo in his first head coaching gig to what he is now at Alabama. It, it's pretty incredible. And stuff that uh, that I think people could use in every walk of life. And that's pretty much exactly what was the inspiration for the book was that, you know, just being around Saban, as I know you have, you know, you feel like this guy's got it figured out. And all these people over the years have told me like, you know, you could put him in charge of a fortune 500 company and you know he would do really well in that. And so I kind of wanted to test that. Like, is there actually something to his formula that I think is valuable outside of just a football organization? And I hope if you read the book, you come away feeling that there is, at least I felt there, there were, because there's so many things that he does that I think can be applied to anything, whether it's in what you and I do, whether it's running a company, whether it's being a middle school you know, basketball coach, he does so much stuff and so you know specific how he does it that I think that there's a lot of value in just adding some of those things to your everyday life. But I do love, I'm glad that you brought it up. I did love talking to the Toledo guys and kind of yes. understanding, you know, who this guy was before he became the GOAT. You know, we can see it now. We He's got it figured out. But, you know, young, in his 30s, hard-charging Nick Saban, you know, that was, that that some of those stories were some of my favorite ones in the book. Including one of his players was current Chicago Bears head coach, Matt Eberflus. Like, that's a pretty interesting Ground zero, if you're going to become a coach, to have Nick Saban take over your team. And what I love about Ibrafus in particular is that this guy, again, now the Chicago Bears head coach, you know, has one of the 32 best jobs in the NFL. 
And he still can remember with great detail the first time he met Nick Saban, the first time you know he had a big tackle and Saban explained to him, you know, don't focus on this, focus on what comes next. Like it shows the impact that somebody can have and that Saban has had that this guy who it's not like he hasn't accomplished a lot. I mean, he was just a defensive coordinator in the NFL, was in the SEC. Like he's had plenty of things along his life. It's not like this is the greatest thing he's ever done, but that he still remembers so clearly the impact Saban had, I think, speaks to Saban's ability to have an impact like that. Well, so first of all, though, I got to take issue with something you left out of the book. You you dangled it on Twitter last week, and I think the listeners of this podcast will truly appreciate the nuance here and, and what it says about Nick Saban and what it says about Jeremy Pruitt. And I don't know how you left this out of the book, but one of the, one of the things that was on the cutting room floor... Is Jeremy Pruitt trying to explain to Nick Saban what a Zaxby's is? It's it's absolutely incredible. And I've got I have another cutting room floor anecdote that I saved just for you, Andy, that we can get to later. Oh boy. That just missed the cut. But what's amazing about it, especially if you're you're a fan of the SEC and you you know you've heard Nick Saban talk and you've heard Jeremy Pruitt talk, like even though I wasn't there for the moment, it got relayed to me. I can 1000% envision that exact moment. I can hear the cadence in Saban's voice asking what the F is Zaxby's was. I can see, I can hear the North Alabama Jeremy Pruitt. Well, coach, it's a classier Chick-fil-A. I can, I can see all of it. And it just, for me, when I, when somebody told me that, like, I was like, this is incredible because again, and I, I tweeted this, but like, this is a guy who famously didn't know what asparagus was, which no, Pruitt, I, not Saban. I had last night, uh, I had some asparagus and I thought of Jeremy Pruitt again. But yes, Pruitt didn't know what asparagus I was. I still think that was for MTV's cameras on I think two days. That, but it's also like, it's such a weird thing. I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to. He didn't, He's claimed that he knows what asparagus is. I, I get that. Well, he does now. Cool. Yeah, for sure. But it's a, it's just a hilarious thing. And to your point, I think it says a lot about Saban because there's another thing, and I forget the exact restaurant, but for years he was talking about how one of his favorite places in Tuscaloosa is where he got this meatloaf, only for that, like that place has been closed for years and he was still right. telling that story. And so it's either he just doesn't actually go anywhere and he just keeps saying that, or some poor guy, maybe Cedric, has to make him meatloaf similar to that one restaurant. I mean, he's just so... He's so locked into what he does. And this is a man who eats two moon pies for breakfast and the same turkey salad every day for lunch. Every single day, right? And somebody somebody in the book, I forget who it was, but somebody in the book put it to me that I thought made a lot of sense was that he's basically like a thoroughbred that has blinders on. Like whatever he is locked into, he is locked into. And anything that is not in that one area, he's just not paying attention to. And so like people are like, how could he possibly not know? Like, if you know Nick Saban, like, of course he wouldn't know. I mean, I, I joke all the time with people like, I'd love to like quiz him on like, how much do you think milk costs? Or how, like, what do you think is like the hottest restaurant in Birmingham now or whatever? Like, he just has no idea about those things. That's just not what he has to focus on. No, and, and that's that's what makes him who he is. And I think you, you do a really job laying this out. He has, is laser focused and and I think it's, it sounds like it took him a while to understand that not everybody's like that. Not everybody he's going to coach is going to be like that. Where, because he he's his thing is if you're going to sweep the streets, be the best damn street sweeper there ever was. Street sweeper there ever was. If you're going to sell insurance, be the best damn insurance salesman there ever. And just devote your 
the entirety of your being to this pursuit and not just the results of it, but the, the process of it and every step along the way, dominating every little bit of it. I, how long did it take him before he figured out that not everybody's like that? I mean, you could argue it's still taken. I mean, it, I think <laughs> he's it's still only, working on it. Yeah, yeah, I think he is. I mean, I think, it, I think you see it in particular now at this point with coaches, you know, I think he sometimes get, gets confused when, you know, guys, I mean, one of the things that people have told me is that like this guy truly just absolutely loves practice, you know, because it's it's the place where all that goes into effect. It's the perfecting of your craft. And he just loves that so much. Like, I think he gets confused. Like, why doesn't everybody love this? Like, why don't you love the grind the way that I do? And so that's something I think he's always going to be a little challenged with. But I think as time went on. I think he was good at figuring out how to reach different people in different ways and that not everybody is going to have that intrinsic motivation to be the absolute best the way he is. And he had to, I think, learn there are different ways to reach different people. And some people need a kick in the butt. Some people need to be built up. And I actually think this past season was a pretty good example of that in which Saban had to adjust his style of coaching because that team just was not was not built the way past ones have. You could tell, you know, one of the best ways I can think about it is that you've been in plenty of these examples, Andy, after a big win is when Saban's always mad. He's always just torches him. Yeah. And you didn't see that with this year. Like, I think he realized like, I can't knock these guys down. They're kind of shaky as it is. I got to keep building them up and building them up. So even that I thought was a good example of him just still tweaking the formula to find different ways to reach, you know, kids of this age. Well, and you, you have a lot of examples in the book of, of different milestones kind of in his career where he figured things out. And the, the Ohio state game, I believe it was 99 at Michigan state, which is where Lonnie Rosen, who's a, a professor at Michigan state, who he still works with. Everybody calls him Gandalf, right. uh, had introduced him I don't think it's it's something Nick Saban already knew instinctively, but kind of gave him a way to say it where he talked about the process, the the don't worry about the scoreboard, dominate the next play. And it, and it gave Nick Saban a way to kind of relay that to the players. And then they finally see it work against Ohio State. And it feels like that was a breakthrough moment in his coaching career. Absolutely. And I think the way you put that is really smartly put, because I don't think it's that it was this foreign concept to Saban. I think a lot of it was things that he was already doing. I think it just crystallized it in his head of, like you said, not focusing on the 60 minutes of the game, focusing on those seven second little moments of give me the best seven seconds you've got and then let's win the next one. And, and I think it broke it down in a way that made a lot of sense to him. But yeah, I mean, if they lose that game, you know, does he take off the way, you know, he ended up taking off? I think it's a, that's another what if potentially, because I do think you need those moments, no matter what you do, but especially in football to back up what you're selling. That's one of the things that I write about too. Like if Nick Saban ran the organization the way that he does and they never won, nobody would want to work there because it's right. incredibly hard. It's incredibly challenging. Like you have to have a, some sort of reward at the end of, you know, the rainbow or whatever. And for them, it's winning. Right. And so yeah. getting that Ohio state win, I think got guys to buy in and realize there's really something to what this guy's saying. I need to you know double down on my efforts 
And then after that, he just really takes off and, you know, goes to LSU and then, you know, the rest is history. Well, and you also wonder, could he recruit the way he recruits without the, you have to win to recruit the way he recruits because you, you had a couple examples of that. I, I would love to know who the quarterback in the class of 2008 was who, who told, tells Nick, this is a recruit. This is not a guy who went to Alabama, but who tells Nick Saban, you didn't tell me I'm the man. And Nick Saban's like, why the hell would I tell you you're the man? <laughs> and I think that's been so huge to what they do. And Julio Jones is a great example. He's the famous one. But yeah, I mean, and I think even, even today, I think if you want to tie it to some of the NIL and things like that, you know, there's promises being made everywhere. And lots of coaches do that. And then what happens is you make promises to a guy, and then you get him on campus, and all of a sudden you change. You're not that guy's friend anymore. You're a drill sergeant. And then that kid gets upset, and then he transfers. And I think what Saban's so good at is establishing, whether it's as a coach or as a player, from day one, these are the expectations. You know, If you deliver, you have a lot of potential to go to the NFL, make a lot of money, whatever it might be but I'm not giving you anything like you got to work for it. And so for him to, I mean, he needed Julio so bad in that class and even to not promise Julio anything was huge. And Julio loved it. I think he loved the fact that Saban was basically challenging him to, you're going to have to work to get it. And he was like, I'm in, let's do it. And Julio was such a game changer for them in so many different ways, not only on the field, but from a cultural standpoint amongst you know the, the team. Well, and, and Julio's that the, they put it, you know, put him through the, the, the work in the camp, like where they worked him like they would a kid who has no chance of being recruited by Alabama because they wanted to see how he worked. Whereas other schools would have been like, oh, no, you're the star recruit. Because didn't Nick Saban, when, when he took the job, like what, didn't even watch Julio's film because he's like, I already know who he is. He's NFL ready. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, like one of the GAs, the recruiting guys, was about to put out the Julio tape. And he was like, listen, man, just because I was in Miami doesn't mean I don't know who Julio is. Like That guy's ready to go already. Like, let's move on to the next one. But yeah, I love that scene in which Saban basically sees Julio. I think he's like kind of like leaning up against like a wall. He's like, what are you doing, man? Like, it's it's time to do the camp. Like, let's go. Like, he directly challenged Julio. And I thought that was huge. And later on, uh, there's a thing in that same chapter where they did a like a survey. I think it was of the 2019 recruiting class. Like, why did you come to Alabama? Things like that. And I think it was 25% of them specifically said because you promised me nothing. You know that that was actually what sold me on the fact that everyone was telling me I can have the world, and you're telling me I'm getting nothing. That that was a direct reason why they picked Alabama, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, I, I love that. And, and, but I, I also think that's true. Like the, that's one of the more interesting things about Saban that I, I think people don't understand. And Ari Wasserman and I on the, this podcast had this argument about Brent Venables the other day with Venables talking about how he doesn't want people to commit to Oklahoma until he's sure uh, they're sure they want to commit and don't want to look anywhere else. And I think a lot of that is Brent Venables trying to create a self-selecting sample of players like this is the kind of player I'd want to coach. This is the kind of player that he believes can help. I think Nick Saban has created the ultimate self-selecting sample. Now he doesn't feel the same way about, about the commitment and not taking other visits. Like he doesn't have the same philosophy as Venables on that because he'll just recruit over you the entire time. And, and you have to go in knowing that, but he's created this. I, I remember talking to Jonathan Allen about it. And he was the one who said, cause Jonathan Allen, like you talked to him, this is a person who, who probably feels very uncomfortable being complimented. He grew up with a, a military dad uh, where, where things were strict and, and 
the standard was very high all along. He he know he doesn't want to hear how great he is ever. And I think he found it refreshing that Nick Saban said, I'm just going to give you the same opportunity as everybody else, as opposed to you're the greatest thing I've ever seen. No, absolutely. And I can think just even in my, for me personally, like, you know, I like, there's something about either be, being counted out a little bit. I mean, it's why being an underdog is such a huge motivational factor for people. And so when somebody's not promising you, somebody's not blowing up all, blowing all the smoke up you, like, I think, I mean, I know personally, I respond well to that. And I think a lot of players do. And I do think that they, you know, one of the things in there, uh, Tower Siski, who was the recruiting guy for a few years, he said that, when you recruit to Alabama, it almost comes with an inverse pitch of what a typical recruiting thing is. And he basically says, like, we have to almost tell these guys, are you sure you want this? Are you sure you're <laughs> right. getting into Because you it? may not like this. Yeah, like, this is going to be incredibly hard. Like, I know that we all say that, but, like, it actually is going to be really hard. Like, and we are going to be recruiting five stars every single year. So, like, you need to know what you're getting into. And so I think that limits, you know, every program has transfers, as Alabama does, too. But very rarely do you see a real impact guy leave Alabama because I think that they know exactly what they're getting into ahead of time. And so there's less reason to be resentful or want to leave because they know what they're getting. We'll be right back after this message from one of our lovely sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It's amazing to me how how he kind of developed all these little things along the way. That one of my favorite stories that you have in the book is of he's at LSU and they're going to play game. I this is right after the Bluegrass Miracle, right? This so this is uh, they they win this incredible game at Kentucky. He kind of knows what's going to happen afterward because they didn't deserve to win. Everybody's celebrating and nobody nobody seems to to realize that that, that it's a problem. And so practice didn't go well, but the, the movie the night before, and usually a lot of times they'll, they'll just take a team to a theater and, and you pick a movie or they would pick the movie for, they saw The Ring, which <laughs> by the way, The Ring is probably the, the scariest movie I've ever seen in a theater. I remember watching it with my wife being terrified and then her sister-in-law wanted to go see it, but didn't want to go see it by herself. So I volunteered to go see it with, with her sister. And, and I'm thinking halfway through the movie, why did I do this? <laughs> this is terrifying. Yeah. All I can think of, I mean, Nick Saban doesn't really make mistakes. I, I don't know if like he thought that it was going to be inspiring or if he just really thought that it was maybe like a Lord of the Rings type thing. Like, oh, the ring, that's cool. Like, But like, as you said, that is a legitimately scary movie. And to see Little that girl like, crawling out of a well yeah, through your TV. To see it the night before the game, uh, 
was not a great decision, obviously. And one of the guys talks about how like multiple starters didn't sleep well that night because they were scared. But what I love about it, and like I know Andy, you and are talking off air earlier about you know some of the stuff that Saban does with movies, but you know, he always tries to work it into his pregame, you know, mission or speech or whatever. I love that he tried to work the ring into his pregame speech. It didn't work, but like he's committed to his things. Like, ah, well, like, you know, this probably wasn't the best movie, but like I got to do my thing. So like, let's let's do it like the ring. And I just thought that was so hilarious. He and they got crushed. They got destroyed. Yeah, absolutely destroyed. And what's amazing is that. He still uses, I mean, he doesn't tell the ring story. I don't, I, this is the first I've ever heard about it for this book, but I think it was even last year. He, he brought, he brings back that game up a lot because it's all about, you know, the win doesn't necessarily mean everything is going perfectly. And that was the example he uses a lot. That there were actually a lot of issues that needed to be corrected that didn't get corrected because they found a way to win. And that, you know, just because you're winning doesn't mean there, you know, is, there aren't issues beneath the surface. And so he brings that up, that game a lot. So I, I love the little ring. But, end of it. So he uses that as an example still, but and, and he used that ring experience and it changed how he operated with regard to the movies, which this is like the most Nick Saban thing ever is basically after that, he took much more control over the movie or made sure somebody else did. And so I did a couple books with with the late Trevor Moad, who, when he was working for for Saban in Alabama, had some hand in picking the movie. And so they're going to play Texas for the national title in the Rose Bowl. And this is a few days before they're in a staff meeting and they're actually talking about what movie they're going to show. Because this is it went from we can't show the ring again. We can't take him to the ring again to we're going to approve this and make sure it's right. So. They they're arguing about what movie to show. And there's Saban wants Invictus. Like he's been given a list of potential movies. And Saban wants Invictus. It's a it's an inspiring story. It's about rugby in, in South Africa. And thinks, okay, this will right, Matt Damon. The, right. The, and the team will galvanize around this. Trevor wants Miracle. And Saban's like, well, it's old and it's hockey and none of my guys played hockey. They don't know anything about hockey. And so Trevor is basically asked to explain this. Meanwhile, Scott Cochran and Kirby Smart and all of the assistants are just holding up their their game plans, just laughing behind them because they don't want to see Nick Saban. They don't want Nick Saban to see them laughing, but they're cracking up. And so... Trevor has to explain, this is why a miracle will work. This is, this is why you'll get this big rousing goosebumps speech from, from Kurt Russell as Herb Brooks at the end. It'll, it'll take him right into going to bed. It'll be perfect. And so Saban's like, okay, sounds good. And then they had, so you had to have two DVDs, two copies of the DVD. And they would custom cut the DVDs, the movies, because they had to fit into a window. Saban didn't like long movies. As, as one of the, his former staffers put it, we're not sure the kids knew why they were trying to find Private Ryan because we cut that part out. So, but so they played Miracle, but the first DVD didn't work. Oh no! And they had to go to the backup. <laughs> but what I love it's just about amazing that. how those little tiny like he thinks about that stuff all the time. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. I think that's what, in part, what separates him is like because because he's. You know, in some ways, like that feels like someone almost like a micromanager would do, right? But but he still has enough control over the big picture. Like I think he's so smart about how he does 
think about those little things, but not getting into the weeds on every little tiny thing. Like there are things he's like, I, I trust my guys do your thing, but also yeah. like, I am going to think about this because it is important. And, you know, one of the most important things that I think he does is like, he wants to make sure the guys come out the right way to start a game. It's why he's not usually going to do the big fiery, you know, pregame speech. That's not really how he works. He thinks about it very intently. And so, I mean, I think that's absolutely hilarious that, you know, they don't know why they're saving Sidney Pride Ryan, but like, it, it doesn't surprise me because that's, you know, that's who he is. Well, I, and, and, and so they played, they played Texas. And, and from what I was told by people who worked at Texas, the, the Texas philosophy on the pregame movie was you take them to the theater and they just pick from what's, what's available. Well, that, that weekend or that week, one of the movies that was out was Alvin and the Chipmunks to the Squeakquel. So I'm really hoping that that's what the Longhorns watched before the game. Really I don't, I don't think it up. was, but that's hilarious. So, but these are these are the types of things that that he you know takes with him. I, I think going to LSU and and building that program up, like one of the things you and you detail this in your book, where he went in, and he was basically interviewing the people who were interviewing him at LSU more than more than they were asking him questions. Like he came in as like, why does your, why does your graduation rate suck so bad? What's wrong with your academic support? How do we fix that? And he did fix it. It did make things better. And it was among the first things he demanded when he took the job at Alabama for, when, when Mal Moore offered it. He's really smart, I think, about doing the research. I think he also realized, like, you know, there are certain places where you are built to succeed, but you do need the resources available. And so at LSU, it was, you know, the graduation rate was a disaster. So immediately, you know, recruited this guy, I think it was from USC, to come down and, like, revamp their academic uh, stuff. And it's, you know, I think some of the stories that made me laugh in the book are about how, again, how hands-on he was about academic stuff. Like, he used to be, they used to have long meetings uh, and I didn't put it in the book, but, you know, they were so long. He'd make all of his assistants come at one point. Like Derek Dooley was like, like, what are we going to get in trouble for today? Because of the guys doing, you know, academics, like they, they were guys who had to be there. They're three, four hours long for academics. That was something he identified right from the get go. Facilities were a problem. And for years, different LSU coaches were trying to get facilities made. And he's I think he said at one point to Pete Jenkins in the book, like, yeah, those guys tried. I'm going to do it. And he did. He got it built. I mean, he didn't really benefit from it, but he got it built. And at Alabama, I think one of the crucial things, and this has been written about in the past too, but Alabama had a reputation at that time for being wild and crazy. You have boosters kind of running amok the way we see at Texas and Auburn and some of these other places now. And he basically, you know, sat a bunch of them down and said, like, you know, I need your money. I need your support. But like, kind of I need, need your guys, input. <laughs> yeah, I need you guys to clear out. Like, what do you guys want? You want you want national championships? All right, I'll give you guys that. But I'm not coming to every little event that you want me to come to. And so he's just basically like, this is not worth my time. Let me do what is worth my time. And I'll give you guys what you want. And I think it ruffled some feathers. But then he started winning a bunch. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. We're not going to be best friends with Nick Saban. But like, we love national championships. And, and that's enough. So we talked a lot about the schematic flexibility over the years and, and changing the defense. You had a great story with Christian Miller's dad, where Christian Miller's on the sidelines at the AM game in 2012, going, Well, I don't, I'm not a scheme fit. I look at your linebackers, I'm 30 pounds lighter. And Nick Saban's like, No, you see how they can't catch Johnny Manziel? That's why we need you. <laughs> like that part I love. But I didn't realize just how much he changed in terms of coaching style. 
And the part that that I didn't realize was as big of a, an impact on him was the death of Alti Tenpenny. And for those who don't know, Alti Tenpenny was a, a running back who went to Alabama and was, was in the same running back room as Derrick Henry and Alvin Kamara at one point. And then was going to, he transfers, Saban didn't want him to transfer, but he'd, he'd had some, some issues. And then he ends up dying in a, in a one car accident after he fell asleep at the wheel. And how did that change just Saban's outlook and how he interacts with his players? Yeah, I think he was really hurt by it because I think he felt like he was doing the right thing for the organization. At one point, he wanted, I think, Alti to sign some sort of contract basically to like, hey, I'm not going to I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I'm not going to do these other things. And, and Alti ended up not doing that. He transferred out. And it unfortunately played out the way it did. And I think he realized that in that moment, you know, like he cared so much about the kid. And I don't know if he ever really showed it to him. And I think he felt like you know, I need to start showing more of how much I care about these guys and that it's not just about football. Because I think I think it's one of the things that people fundamentally don't understand about Saban is that they think he's a robot and all he cares about is winning. And he does want to win, of course, but he truly does love the kids. I think he truly does believe he's making an impact on these kids and helping them you know, achieve things uh, that they end up going on to doing. So I think he decided you know, at least from players of that team who talked to me about it, like I have to show a little bit more of myself. And that's when we saw some more of the D's nuts jokes. Right. Uh, there was a great line that Keith Holcomb told me uh, about how, you know, he was doing, he was playing two ways. He was doing football and baseball. So he was doing spring practice and then playing baseball. And, you know, Saban would go up to him and Saban played baseball in high school and all that. And he would go up to him and go, like, how'd you do this weekend? He's like, oh, you know, I had two doubles or whatever. He's like, man, I used to hit three dingers a week. Like, we just don't make them like they used to. Like, he just started joking around a little bit more. Whereas guys who on that first 2007 team would tell you, like, they didn't see him smile at all. Like, yeah. and if he did smile, they would be worried about what was about to happen. Like, it wouldn't be a good smile. It would be an evil smile, you know? And so <laughs> saw some of that evolution, I think, of Saban, of trying to show – Again, not a soft side, a softer side of himself. And I think you've seen just the love that guys have for him and the respect they have for him. I think it's really resonated with this kind of younger generation. You know, Najee Harris is a great example of the love that Najee has for him. Like, Stephen had to coach that guy a little bit different. He had to show a little bit more of himself than just being, you know, the head football coach of Alabama. Right. LSU era Nick Saban probably just winds up driving Najee Harris to transfer, right? That, that's, that, that doesn't, they, that career doesn't happen in Alabama. No, not at all. I mean, I think there's, and there's multiple guys, you know, Tua probably would have transferred. I mean, there's just these different guys who Saban, you know, again, showed a different side of himself too, that I think really resonated with them where they could realize, all right, this guy, yeah, I mean, he's a hard charging guy and he wants to win, but like, he wants me to succeed too. That's why he's doing this. And it's something that I think sometimes you can realize after the fact, when you look back on it, but I think guys are now realizing it more in the moment. They're like, all right, I get what he's doing now. Cause he's, he's explaining it a little bit more than he used to. So let's get to the question that everybody in college football wants to know who is not an Alabama fan. When's he going to retire? What, what, it, it, what, what's the end point of, of this? Is there an end point to this? And you had a, a, a really interesting passage in the book where that almost happened. Yeah, and I think that's such a, a great, such an interesting time for Saban back in 2013 where, you know, 
he loses kick six, just an absolute heartbreaking loss. And, you know, people talk to me about it for the book, like he has never gotten over that loss and he never will. And I don't blame him. I don't think I, Alabama fans haven't gotten over it either, but loses to Oklahoma, in the sugar bowl, a terrible loss. And all the Texas rumors are circling around. And then, you know, in the book written for the first time is that you know, he considered potentially going to ESPN as well. And it, to me felt like this really important kind of, uh, crossroads moment for him in which he thought about what do I want to do? Do I want to go to Texas? Do I want to retire and go to ESPN or do I want to stay at Alabama? And of course he ultimately stays at Alabama. It works really well. He wins multiple national championships. Um, But even at that time, he still had a little bit of that mercenary feel to him. You know, people thought he wasn't going to stay at Alabama that long. Nobody, I think thought he would stay 15 plus years the way he has. And so what does he do moving forward, right? It's the billion-dollar question. I think it's the thing that I'm sure Greg Byrne worries about all the time, doesn't want to have to deal with that situation. Having kind of dove into this guy's head writing this book, I can talk myself into all these different scenarios, right? Because if he wins it all, you think, all right, that's the Disney moment. He retires. But if you know Nick Saban, that's going to be when he's most motivated. Right, that's a result, and he doesn't care about results. Right, and so – when I talk myself into it, I think about what is, what is it that finally gets him to retire? I think it's there are two different things. I think it's one, I think he is, I think he knows exactly what it takes every single day to be at the top. And I think I could be proven wrong in a couple of years. People can pull up this clip, but I don't think he's the guy who hangs around too long because I think he respects himself and what it takes too much that if he's waking up, and he's like, man, I just don't want to go to work today, or I just can't get it. I can't get it going today. I think that's when he walks away. If that's how it ends, just because I don't think he's going to want to suffer through nine and three seasons. You well, know? and and so he he told me in 2017. I remember this was in November. I think it was the week of the the FCS opponent before Auburn. And he said, "I will leave before I let it go down." Right. And and, and I I suspect he will know long before any of us will. When that is, I think so too, because he'll see based on recruiting and other things whether he's getting the kids that he wants. And I think people thought is NIL what pushes them out. I think we've seen it potentially impact a couple high profile college basketball coaches retiring in recent years. But I think he likes the challenge of that, trying to. Yeah, I, this feels so. like, yeah, new new thing, new toy to play with, new new puzzle to solve kind of. I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily the thing that that does it. But the other thing which comes up in the reporting around ESPN is that when he was talking to John Wildhack, who's now the Syracuse AD at the time was a high level ESPN executive, talking about a college game day role. And what he kept coming back to, and he's talked about this generally uh, over the years, like it was, how is this like a team? He's like, I've been part of a team since I was nine years old. That's all I know. And he said, basically, he's scared to death to not be part of a team. And so if there's a combination of, I don't think this is working anymore. And is there something that makes him feel like, all right, I'm leading a team. I'm being part of a team that he feels like is worth waking up to every morning. Cause I don't, even when he retires, he's not going to be retired golfing every day. Like he's going right. to need something to have to entertain himself or I'm sure Mr. Terry will kick him out of the house. Like he, there's just no way he's going to be allowed to just do nothing. He's got to have something. And well, so- And that's what I'm trying to imagine. John Wildhack and Lee fitting explaining what the day-to-day role is if you are like I don't know if he would have been in addition to Lee Corso or if that would have been as a replacement for Lee Corso ultimately or how that would have worked but like 
even in season, that's at most a, th- a three, four day a week job. I don't know how he would have filled the hours. Like he probably was doing the math on that thinking there's no way in hell. I'll, I'll go nuts. And that's exactly what happened. I think because John even told him was like, yeah, like it's basically four days a week is when you, cause he was like, basically I love being around the guys. I love being around people every single day. And it's just like, all right, what well, we can't replicate that. Like we can give you four days of that and you'll really like that and you'll have fun of that. But like, we can't give you seven days. That's not how this job is designed. And I, I, I have to imagine that was part of the reason why I was like, all right, that's not enough for me. You know, yeah. I, I need something more than that. We'll be right back after these words. It's interesting because he just seems wired much more. It's funny. He's more like Bobby Bowden, I think, than than people realize because no one no one ever confuses Bobby Bowden and Nick Saban, even though their results are kind of similar. But Bowden's was more of a fear of he'll die if he's not coaching, which he didn't. He actually lived a pretty robust life in retirement until he passed. But Saban... I think you're right. It's exactly what he said. It's the idea of not being around a team. I think mentally, this is where his happy place is when when he gets to grind. And you take away that grind, I don't know if life is nearly as, as satisfying. It's not. And I think one of the, I think it was Pat Perlis, who's George Perlis' son, I think he said in the book to me, it was basically like, this is where he derives happiness from. And it's what gives him energy. Like, Everybody talks about how much energy he has and, you know, he has an incredible amount. He's, he's never so, been sick. I, I do love the Scott yeah. Cochran, like, high, almost whispering, yeah, he's been sick, but. Yeah, like, I, we, know. Don't know that. like <laughs> we don't want that out there. But, like, he basically said, it was like, listen, like, if you dropped him in a different random job, he would burn out like other people. It's just that this is what he was meant to do with his life. And it's why he can work all the hours that he does uh but yeah i mean that was probably uh some of those stories were hilarious like never seen the guy cough never seen him sneeze never seen him yawn like of course he does those things he's not a robot but like it's almost the it's like the mythology around Saban at this point is that like people just start buying into these myths around him because he is so he has accomplished so much and that he is such a hard charging hard-working guy John, it's it's an impressive just explanation of all this. And I think when you read your book, it makes everything that's happened in Nick Saban's career makes so much more sense. So The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban, How Alabama's Coach Became the Greatest Ever by John Talty. You can find it Amazon, anywhere books are sold. Anywhere books are sold, everywhere books are sold. All right, pick it up. I'm telling you, I read it. I read it in a day. I just it was it was fascinating to me. You're gonna love it. You got a you got a football fan in your life. You got you got somebody who just appreciates deep dives into interesting people. That that's who you, who who you're gonna want to buy it for. So, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate. It. I think Andy. I think if we, this becomes a paperback, I think what you just said might get on the back cover. So that was. Ooh, I get a blurb. I saw you, you gave Ross. Blurb. You had Ross Dellinger do a blurb. I mean, come on. We got to, we, I, I, I got to get on the same page with Ross like, here. I felt like I could just make Ross, make Ross. I just need one. I didn't want to bother anybody with it. You, you've been good before <laughs> getting blurbs on books. It's not the most fun process. But my blurb is going to be like, how could he leave out the Zaxby's story? Andy All right, well, let me tell you, you want one more story? Can I yes, read give it to me. All right, I'll, I'll, so here's, 
This was the actual nice little uh, treat for the listeners here. This was actually the last thing that got cut from my book. I went back and forth with my editor numerous times. And eventually she's just like, you don't need it. I was like, I know, but it makes me laugh. Like, just let me have it. And she's like, you don't need it. I was like, all right, fine. I'll let you have this one. So 2016, Alabama plays USC in Dallas. Uh, Famous Blake Barnett starts that game, plays two series, gets pulled. Uh, Alabama absolutely crushes USC 52 to six. So late in that game, I think it's actually the last touchdown. This guy, Garrick Dieter scores mm-hmm. a touchdown. And as Holy he's running transfer. Zone, he puts up like number one, number one and runs to the fans and starts celebrating with the fans. So flash forward, I think a day or two later, they're doing their film review. They're going through what was a blowout win and Saban gets to that play. And he, pauses on it and he's just like what the hell are you doing like what like, what is going on here like you need to be celebrating with your teammates like not the fans and then he goes like how do you even know how to do that you didn't have any effing fans at bowling green and so poor <laughs> bowling green just an absolute ricochet shot in this film review and Listen, he, he's a Kent state that. alum. He was Toledo's head coach. It's just some simmering Mac feud that that's been, yeah, he, he had it in dorm, his lying dormant. my shot at Bowling Green, but the whole team apparently was cracking up. And uh, it's just one of those things that I think it's a little underrated about Saban is that he has these little zingers that are pretty funny. Oh yeah. That, that is tremendous. John, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Andy.